Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1109. You need some emotive something to show who you are and what you are. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest calling in from the UK, Shami Kalra. Hey, Shami, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am very much ready for this ride. Yes, definitely. <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Shami Kalra is the founder of Omo Legato, a British watch brand that was established in 2015. His goal is to create fine motorsport inspired timepieces designed to celebrate iconic locations, cars, and figures. Shami has more than 25 years of experience in the watchmaking industry and brings his passion for all things motorsports to his brand, Omo Legato. His focus is to ensure that every timepiece he produces is a real tribute to the sport. The watches are hand-assembled using a world-leading chronograph movement housed in British design cases with bespoke faces and straps. They offer the broadest and most accessible range of watches designed specifically for us automobile enthusiasts in the world today. So, Shami, I have told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment and share a little bit more about your business and a, a very obvious passion for automobiles? Yeah. Hi. Thank you. That's that's a very flattering uh, introduction. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, who's this guy you're talking about? <laughs> no, I found you. you. I found you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, very simply, I, I've, I've always been passionate about anything with four wheels, always, since I can remember, since my dad was, the passion came to my dad, actually. He loved anything German and anything with a, especially with a star on it, a Mercedes. And um, mm. I remember Ever since my early recollection of him bringing a car or buying a car, I remember the the three-pointed star and falling in love with the workmanship and everything and being really proud about, you know, he didn't have to pay me to wash it. I wanted to wash the car. (laughs) I think I must have been seven or eight years old or something where I just loved just sitting in it. So that passion sort of grew as I grew, sort of 10 years old, 11 years old. I think my father took me to the Mercedes factory in Sindelfingen when I was 10. Wow, and it was almost like the um, almost like a Charlie in the Chocolate Factory type feeling. You know? <laughs> You'd seen these magical products, you wonder where they'd come from, and to actually go and see them being put together, nut and bolt. It was I was hooked. I think when I was twelve, my school project, they, I, I could choose any any story about anything that was going on, uh, factual story, mm-hmm. and I actually chose the story of uh, Mercedes and how it started and. Nice. And from what I remember, I think it was a young lady called Elenic Mercedes. I, I think I might be wrong, but from, from memory. So I wrote this whole story about the Mercedes brand and where it was. So I fell in love. I fell in love with cars and I fell in love with anything with four wheels. I went to for my first race. I think it must have been 15 or 16. Just the whole excitement. I didn't know what was going on. I had no affiliation with any track or any person or anything like that. But I just loved the sound of what yeah. was going on and, and, and what was happening. Um, so that's where my love of motorsport started. Um, oh. I couldn't afford anything to do with motorsport at all. I mean, I got married at a young age, um, met my wife when I was 17. We got married at 22. We had our first child at 23. So I settled in very early. 
And uh, with children, as most of us know, they eat and they need clothes. (laughs) Yeah. And And so my life sort of started off with basically having to earn money, which is obviously what we all have to do. But but I had to earn money in a way that 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 sustained the family and kept the family going. So I went off in the corporate world and and did that, which was which was fine. I mean, you know, it paid for their school, it paid for their food, and that was it. That's all I needed to do. Our first race together with my son and I, I think I must have been late 20s when we went to the British Grand Prix in Silverstone. Uh, getting these two tickets to go to the Grand Prix, I remember my wife bought it for my birthday present for my son and I, who I can't remember how old he was. He was very young, though, and I was late 20s. He must have been five or six. But again, it was almost like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory type thing. We've got these golden tickets to go and see our heroes. So we went for the day, and um, despite the fact these tickets costing probably two months' worth of groceries at the time, we went to this to the Grand Prix, and we saw nothing, absolutely zero. We saw maybe a car go past for about 30 seconds. We didn't understand what was going on. And the whole ethos of the, of the Grand Prix and the Formula One, even now, actually, is it's exclusive. Mm. exclusive basically means you're excluded from things oh gosh yeah yeah so that's what exclusive means and that feeling of being excluded you can't go in to see your heroes you can't go in to see the cars you you can just about see the cars on the track during the race i wanted a motorsport watch you couldn't have it because the bigger brands were doing one for three or four thousand dollars right and, you know when we'd spent 300 or effectively i think it was about 400 dollars at the time 500 dollars to buy two tickets to buy a $3,000 or $4,000 watch, forget it. Like, there was no right. way I could afford it. You know, so the whole feeling of that motorsport world excluding you because you didn't have the money has stuck with me. And, it, and mm. it formed the basis of this business because my brand is very inclusive. You don't want to go to a party and stand at the front door and look through the window and watch people having fun. That's not a nice right. feeling. Right. With my brand, you buy something, you can spend three to $500 and you're in. You're part of family. Nice. And, and that family means getting involved with the brand. And we get involved in, in various different ways. And we invite customers to everything. And there's not many brands who you buy entry level, not, I say entry level, three to $500. And, and then they invite you to come and meet a world champion, or a world Formula One champion, or, or come and have a look at the latest Formula E car, or come to the grid at the Indy 500. You know, it's that kind sure. of interaction that I have with my customers. You know, this is an awesome story. I love this, and I love the way you wove that into today. And as we continue on your journey, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote or a mantra. It's a nice way to get things rolling here. Great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Shami, take the wheel. So, my inspirational quote, and the one thing that is in my mind continuously with growing a brand, is I always ask myself, why should you buy a watch? You know, a lot of people, they use electronic devices or computers and what have you. So the mechanical watch industry is, in some areas, is actually declining. But in some areas, especially with us, it's actually increasing. So my idea behind the company is everyone should own a watch with a story. Now, a lot of people have stories about my grandfather gave me this watch, therefore I wear it. This, this watch came with me on college when I graduated. This watch came with me when I was 21. My dad bought it for me. My mum gave me that. So everyone has this kind of story behind a watch. 
And so to build these stories into something that's effectively, you know, it, it, it's a tough call in, in today's society when everyone's got an electronic device to tell the time. But you need some emotive something to show who you are and what you are. So, for instance, if you're happy wearing an electronic watch, which has a calculator and stuff like that, but it's very functional, then that, that's good for you. I respect that. But then if you want to wear a $50 watch, but actually it's because your grandfather wore it in the 20s or he, he took it out wherever, whatever he did in the 40s, that watch no longer becomes anything about the money. It actually becomes about the memories and the story of that watch. So every watch that I do has a story inbuilt into it, whether it be Marinello. Now, Marinello is not just a watch about, hey, this is a Ferrari watch, therefore you need to buy it. Marinello, actually, if you look at the face of it, tells the story of a 1961 championship, Formula One championship that Enzo Ferrari, after 14 years of, 14 years of uh, a failure, actually finally won the Formula One championship. And if you look at the outside bezel of that watch, you'll see eight tracks were, were competed in. And the ones that he won are in Rosso Red, and the ones that he didn't win are in the white. And then Phil Hill, who was the only American who, at the time who actually won the Formula One championship, and he won it for Enzo. He wanted a Monza in front of the home crowd for Enzo, so, for Enzo, so he was very happy. The final race, which is Watkins Glen, it's white on the, on, the, uh, on the watch, which means they didn't win it. The reason they didn't win it, because Enzo told Phil Hill, I don't need to go to America. We've won the championship. You can go to America and, uh, and do what you want to, but I'm not spending the money to do it. So Phil Hill, proud American, won this championship for such a great man and such a great brand. But Enzo said, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, not interested. No. So in front of his home fans, he went round to an open top limit, which <laughs> Phil Hill was absolutely gutted because he wanted to drive in front of his own brand. So going back to my point, Every watch should have a story. When you look at the Maranello, it tells you the whole story of Enzo, his ruthlessness, their first championship, and the tracks, and Phil Hill. You can, you can build in everything into it. So Very my nice. mantra and, my, and, and the way when I design is every watch has to have a story. Yeah, because otherwise, why, why, why would you want to wear a watch? Why would you yeah. want something? Other big brands do it as well. And you know, I think one of the famous brands used the, uh, the mantra, uh, looking after it for the next generation or something. Yes. I think that's so cool. That's Patek such a Philippe, cool. Yeah. That's Patek yeah. Philippe, yeah. Yeah. Patek Philippe say that. And I think that's such a cool thing because you are, these pieces are, they do become part of you. Wonderful. You know, this is great. And it kind of gives me goosebumps because my, I lost my father-in-law, my wife's father about eight years ago. And he left a watch behind that was a glycine, and he bought it when he was fighting the Vietnam War in Vietnam. He did three tours of service there. He was a Marine. When we lost him, she gave that watch to my son, and she said, you know, I don't know if this is worth any money. I just remember my dad always shaking his wrist because it was an automatic watch, and that's yeah. how you wound it. Yes. And she said, when I was little, I used to think, why are you doing that all the time? <laughs> and one time, he finally explained to me why he was doing it. But for years, she couldn't figure out, why is he always shaking his watch? It's so bizarre. Mm. So that that story of his life and what he went through, and he almost died over there. He was wounded and all these things carries forward with that watch, just the way you just described it. So what a wonderful, wonderful story. Well, you kind of answered this next question, and that is a story that instigated your passion for cars. You talked about going to that race 
uh, when you were young and being around cars when you were young. Is is there a pivotal moment that you remember in your life you knew you were indeed a car? When I was lucky enough and I had a little bit of money I and a few things just sort of lined up, <laughs> the stars aligned, and I got my first Lotus Elise. And it was a Series 1, 118 horsepower, which I think is the same in American money. And I remember just sitting in it feeling, oh, I mean, it wasn't an expensive car. I mean, they, they've gone up in value like a lot of things, a lot of old classics. Well, it's not a classic, but it, a lot of older cars have gone up in value. But at the time, it was very affordable. It was a very sort of achievable product um, car. And the, the day that I picked it up, I felt like a rock and roll star. It just everything that I'd wanted, because again, growing up with a family, you need, we call them estate cars in England, but it's station wagon, you know, right. so we had the VW station wagons, we had the whatever we had to have to keep the family going sort of thing. Um, sure. And then for once in my life, I'd actually got enough money. So that sparked it completely. Cool. And that started my passion for the brand Lotus. I absolutely love Lotus. Nice, um, nice. <laughs> up to the point, and then it, and then it, it switched, but I, I won't bore you with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great story. I love it. Yeah, yeah, first car I ever raced was a Lotus 18 Formula Junior. So uh, my, my passion for Lotus goes back a ways, too. So, Shammy, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl into the hood and talk about a big challenge or even a big failure you faced in business along the way. These are tremendous learning lessons and they help us move forward. So walk us through one of those times for you and, and tell us how that experience helped you gain even more momentum as you move forward. So all through my uh, professional career, obviously in the beginning, you know, you're, you're starting off and so money's tight and all the rest of it, but it was a certain point where actually things were quite comfortable and, and things started sort of panning out and working out for me. So I was, I was doing okay in the sense that I could just get everything sorted and everything done. And then with the worldwide crash that happened in 2008, oh, yeah. yep. uh, it, didn't, it didn't have an impact on the business immediately, but it came through maybe two or three years later where all the contracts that I had in place were coming to an end and people weren't renewing and everything started grinding to a halt to the extent that I had to sell my car. We had a period where we ha I had no car because I couldn't afford to have it. I was down to my last $10, I think it must have been, yeah, $10. It was, it was demoralizing because I'd worked so hard to get to there. I worked so hard with these corporations to keep them happy over the years and to keep supplying them what they wanted on time and how they did it, how they, how they wanted it, working, you know, whatever I needed to do to keep people happy. And, I, and with the drop of a hat because of various budgets, their loyalties were no longer they were no longer there. They simply didn't have the money anymore, just like a lot of the world. Well, no, they did have the money, but they, instead of saying, okay, we worked with you for the last 15, 20 years, and you've done everything for us, and we've made money out of you, it suddenly became, we're going to start tendering out, and because this guy is 1% cheaper than you, we're going to go. They, they completely discounted all the hard work that I'd done. So it was quite demoralizing. I, in the beginning, I suppose like with any problem, people don't want to admit it in the beginning, so you put your head in the sand. And then you start thinking, no, 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 it's going to come back. It's going to come back. And then you sort of wake up one day when you have nothing almost and you've sold all your sort of whatever you can sell to keep the business going. And you wake up and then I have a, have a reality check and say, actually, this is not going to turn around. Actually, this is a problem. And admitting to yourself, we're all proud men when we're, when we're in front of the family. You've got to be a proud man and say, no, I can look after the family. I'm the hunter-gatherer and I'm not, I'm not going to fail. But sometimes 
you know, admitting to yourself that you failed and, and you got it wrong, it, it's, it's tough. You've got to get to a certain stage. So it was that point that I thought to myself, well, actually, my whole career, I've been relying on other people to tell me what to do and sort of pay my bills, if you like. I, I'd never had anything tangible which I could go out and do something with. So that was a pivotal moment between 2013, middle of that year, to the day that I started this business. So it probably took me about 18 months to sort of realize that actually I've got to take control of what I'm doing rather than allowing other people to tell me what I can. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. And, and that was a pivotal moment. Well, it took me 18 months though. So it was 18 months of hell, but you know, we, we, we went through it. It takes time sometimes. And it, that sounds like an answer to my next question about a big aha moment. And I really appreciate you taking us to a very painful time. I have heard that story over and over and over with my guests here. That was a, tremendously challenging time. And it's not just here in the U.S. did I hear it. It's around the world. I mean, that just, that impacted everybody. So yeah, I, was that your big aha moment when you kind of finally looked in the mirror and said, I have to make decisions for myself now and move forward? Was that that big pivot you, you took to make that change happen? I'd love to say it was that constructive and that sort of black and white, but actually it wasn't. <laughs> so, uh, so let's wind back to June the Fourth or June the fifth, two thousand fifteen. It was a Friday evening, so whatever day it was, mm -hmm. I was sitting in the office at five o'clock. My wife came, and she said, "You know, we need to go and do food shopping. We need to do stuff. Uh, can I have some money?" And I sat there and I said, "We have zero. We literally have zero. Maybe maybe twenty dollars left. That was it." Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. and I was, uh, you know, when they sat found Saddam in the hole back in two thousand and three. Yes. I was like that. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I had that kind of sort of look about me and that kind of feel about the way I felt about everything. And it was, it was really demoralizing because, you know, I'm, I'd run a business for years and it, and, it was, and it was because the corporate world has shut their doors on me that I got to that stage. So my wife said to me, listen, we can't live like this. You need to sort yourself out. We need to work out a structure because we're not living like this anymore. I'd love to say it was as polite as that, the conversation, but we can't because it's on record. <laughs> yes. So, but there was, it was a bit more colorful, let's say, the language. Yes, of course. So that was a Friday evening, and I thought, right, she's right. I've got to do something. I cannot allow the corporates to, to bring me down. I cannot allow the corporates to, to sort of dictate what I can and can't do and, and design stuff that I hated doing. I, at, it, at one point, it paid for a great life, and then it didn't. I spent two days in my office in front of my computer, and I've designed watches for years. So I started designing my own watches. I thought, what would I buy? I, and so two days later, I came back out of my office because we hadn't spoken in two days. And I said to my wife, listen, I think I've got something here. Yeah. She said, what is it? And I showed her the design. She goes, <laughs> what, is it? Yeah. what is it? What is it now? <laughs> so I said, this is really cool. So I said, I think they would sell. And, and I'd already sourced it because I'd been buying watches anyway from Japan for years. Yeah. And so I started. And then on Monday, I thought, right, I got them redone. I got the technical drawings redone. I'm good at designing, but the technical drawings and the backup and the movements and everything else need to be done by, uh, by another person who I had freelance at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I sent in my ideas over to him. And within a few hours, he came back with the technical drawings. Says, yeah, we can do that. You know, this yeah. is what you need to do. This is the spec, etc. So Tuesday morning, I went to Shopify. And I got a month's free on Shopify because I, I was down to zero money. So I couldn't even pay the $25 for Shopify. So Tuesday, I started the Shopify store. And 
uh, you know, still ridiculed by people around me saying, oh, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? I said, well, I, if it works, it works. Thursday evening, I got my first sale, which was $600. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you've got $10 left in the bank and someone gives you 600 it's like a fortune. Winning. It's a fortune. Yeah. Within seven days, I'd hit $10,000 worth of sales. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Within 30 days, we'd hit $30,000. Wow. So wow. I suddenly thought, cause, and I only ordered a handful of watches because, you know, and I got credit from my factory because they, they've known me for 25, nearly 30 <laughs> years. Right. So they said, oh, we'll make them for you. And if you can go and sell them, sell them. I'd sold the first order that I'd placed on that Thursday after my first sale on the Friday. And by the next Friday, I'd ordered three times as much. Oh and my by gosh. four weeks later, I'd sold five times and six times as much. First, it was a good quality product. Secondly, mm -hmm. the designs brought people in because if you're, if you're a car guy, you engage. I mean, you and I would go crazy if we saw a pale blue and orange car. We, mm -hmm. Whereas regular guys, <laughs> yes. know, that's a funny blue color. Why has it got an right. orange stripe? Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. But car guys, we're nutters. We're crazy like that. When we see colors, we, you know, you look yeah. at any livery. Association. Association over the years. So within one month, from going to, to having nothing, almost, even to a certain extent, and it's not general knowledge, but, and I'm happy to say it on radio, actually, but we nearly lost the house because it was that bad. So, and within one, one month, we, we turned around $30,000 worth of pre-orders because the watches, the watches take about eight weeks to make. So within one month, we had $30,000 worth of pre-orders. And it was then that I thought, I think I've got something. I think, I think people are actually liking what I'm doing. So I started buying names and I started buying intellectual property because I thought if people are engaging with it, I started buying intellectual property. So I started buying names like I own the name. This is all for class 14, which is watches. So only watches. But I own Marinello. I own Fiorano. I own Pikes Peak. I own Watkins Glen. I own Laguna Seca, Indianapolis, Kyalami, etc. I've got 45 names in total. And all these names that, that, that were synonymous. Can-Am is one of the biggest ones that I own, actually, because a lot, of, and even Indianapolis, because quite a large, Swiss watchmaker is quite upset that I own Indianapolis. <laughs> and they sure. actually have sent me a love letter saying, can you stop using it? And I've sent them a scan of the certificate back and said, yeah, if you want to pay me a bit of money, you can, you can, I'll stop doing it. Yeah. yeah. I'll license the rights to you. <laughs> exactly. The, the yeah. biggest coup actually recently is uh, Monza. Oh. Um, so we've just been, as you, um, you, you may know, and or maybe your listeners might know, we've just become the official timekeepers of, probably the most famous for Formula One track in the world, and certainly oh, the yeah. oldest that's still used. Wow, and, wow. Um, what a story. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, that's another great story because I, last week I went a few, few days ago, whatever it was, I stood on the podium. They took me out to the podium at Monza, and this, these are the big sort of governors and big sort of guys who run the Automobile Club of Italy as well as Monza. I started crying. I'll bet. And, I'll the, bet. Guy, and yeah. the guy said to me, you know, he goes, you're okay. And I went, yeah, yeah. I said, just give me a minute. And honestly, there were, there were tears going through my dad because this place is, is, is like, they call it the temple of speed. And for me, it really is like a Mecca for, for, for much like the, the Indianapolis is. I mean, I went to the Indy 500 this year and I stood on the grid just before the start of the race in front of 400,000 people. I just pinched myself thinking, how, 
How did I get here? How did I get here? (laughs) From being in that queue in the grocery store, not being able to pay for a few tomatoes and a bit of pasta, to suddenly being in in the most magical place on earth for a petrol head, both Monza, Indianapolis, and and I was in Monaco for for the historics, but not only was I in Monaco for the historical Grand Prix, I was on the grid before the start. And again, I'm suddenly thinking, how is this? How is this happening? And I'll tell you why it's happening. It's because my drive is never about money. If I have money, I have money. And if I don't have money, I don't chase it because it's not my drive. My drive is, is the passion of what we're doing. And I don't do it. So I, do, I have a lot of social media feels, but I, I never, um, it's social media, but I never do it to say to people, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing. And aren't I wonderful? I say it as if to say, hey, you're a customer. You have this watch. That watch is on a racing driver who's just about to, to drive the Monaco historic. That guy at the Indy 500 who qualified, I think it was six, is wearing the Indianapolis watch. You can buy into this life. And also, why don't you come and meet us at the Indy 500? We'll give you VIP access into certain areas. Why don't you come to Monza? We're having an event in December. Why don't you come to Monza and come and have a look at the podium? Come and stand on the podium. Come and drive around Monza. That's what we do. So we're, very, we're a very social and very interactive brand because there's no point in me just sort of sitting back and counting the money and saying, oh, thank you very much, guys. I want everyone. That feeling of when I was late 20s, when I went to the British Grand Prix has never left me. That feeling of, hey, you haven't got enough money, therefore you can't come. But that's never left me. That time that I had in 2013 to mid-15, that feeling of sort of like you can't have anything because you don't have money has never left me. So. The fact that this, this company, my company, is, is growing in the UK would become one of the, I believe, my accountants tell me, but other people might tell me otherwise, but we've become one of the top five most profitable British watch brands now. But there's no point, there's no point in just saying, okay, I have money now, so therefore I'm going to, I reinvest that money into social events. I reinvest that money into getting drivers down to sort of come and meet the guy who spent $300 or $500. So you don't have to be that guy who turns up in the big red car with the loud exhaust to get attention. You can turn up in your $500 car. If you love it, bring it, come and meet your hero. That's, that's the way I run this business because I hate the word VIP. I hate the word exclusive because it means you are excluded and no one wants to be excluded. And I think a lot of this world, especially with social media, so-called influencers, they like to show that they're exclusive. And to me, that's rubbish. It, you know, there's no point in saying, hey, look at me, look what I have. Well, what are you going to do with it? Well, why should I watch you? Why should I buy a watch from you? Why should I watch your channel? Why should I even listen to this? It's because it's an inclusive thing. We all want a part of something. So the company is not just about a product. It's about, if you look at a hashtag on both Twitter and Instagram, a lot of my customers, when they buy a watch, they say, we're now part of Team Omologato or hashtag Team Omologato. And if you click that hashtag, you'll see loads of people taking pictures of their watches at racetracks with their heroes at our events. And they feel part of something because they know they're going to be invited to something cool next time around because they have a watch. Very nice. Awesome story. Well, let's have a little bit of fun. Now, you talked about that Lotus that you got. Was that the first really special car that you that you were able to acquire? Yeah, so I had I bought the Lotus Elise Series 1. It was lovely azure blue with beige leather, beautiful car. Uh, standard one, 118 horsepower, like I said earlier. And I had that for nine months, that car. I wanted it longer, but my accountants were, were sort of breathing down my neck and said, listen, you know, the company needs money. And I kept on looking at it every time I turned up to work. So... 
in the end, I succumbed to it and said, okay, fair enough. I've got to get rid of it. And then I couldn't get rid of that. It was almost like losing a part of the family, you know, sort of it was, I was in mourning almost when I got rid of it, which sounds silly because I know there's bigger problems in the world, but I had to get myself another Lotus. So in 2003, so I bought that one in 2000, I sold it, like, like I said, nine months later. So 2003 in May, I bought myself a, a Series 2 Lotus Elise, a triple 1S, which is 156 horsepower. For two years, nobody knew I had it. My wife knew, but even the children, I mean, we, we don't live in a massive house, so we can't hide it in a barn down the, down the road. We live in a townhouse in the center of a, a small town in England. Um, even the children, every time they wanted to go in the garage, I said, what do you want to go in there for? You go, we want to get, no, 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 what do you want? I'll go and get it for you. So for two years, even they didn't know I had the Lotus. Because I, this time around, I didn't want anybody to say you got to sell it for something or whatever because I wanted it to be mine. So 4 a.m. drives around the roads here, you know, <laughs> 11.30 p.m. drives into London, that sort of thing. That's all I used to, maybe used to do with it. And then when things settled a bit, I actually said to everybody, it was almost like a dirty secret. I sort of came out and said, <laughs> I've got a Lotus and I've had it two years and people didn't I've say I've hid it from you all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I had that car until 2007 so i had it just under five years loved it a bit it was 2008 and then i unfortunately i did my back in um and i had to go in for back surgery and it took me about four months to get better the day i felt good i felt good i can i can bend over and get into the car again i was in hospital the day after i tried to get into it oh yeah so even the doctor said you cannot drive that car your back's not strong enough I had to sell the Lotus, which I, again, you know, I was upset about it, but hey, I couldn't drive it. So there was no point in having right. it. Right. So exactly. I, I then moved over to Porsche, Porsche. And I remember Porsche lending me a Cayman S. I, handling is my main thing. Top speed, I don't really care about, you know, because obviously on the, on the main roads, you, on, on public roads, you can't drive fast. It's stupid. And anyone who speeds on public roads, you got what's coming to you. I don't like it at all. If you get it, the speed limit in England, 70, they allow you up 10% over that. So my fun factor is between 30 and 70, 30 and 75. If I can have fun in that, in that area, then, um, then that's all I need. I don't need anything else. Cayman S, everyone was talking about the Porsche Cayman, said, oh, the handling is better than the Lotus. It's, it's built better than that, um, and, it's, and it's an amazing car to drive. So I remember driving the Cayman S, and I fell in love with it straight away. And I kept that car 11 years. I, just, I only just sold it this year, but because I got a, a more special Porsche, uh, which was a, actually, I, I didn't know I was going to get it, but it just happened. The stars aligned again. And I've, got a, I've now just upgraded my Cayman S, which is a 3.4 S, three, just under 300 horsepower. Loved it. Bits. Had it 11 years. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to just picked up the new GT3, the 4-liter. Oh, yeah. So that's 500 <laughs> nice. horsepower. It's a manual. It's a club sport package. Nice. Uh, it's just ridiculous, honestly. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm a big Porsche <laughs> fan. Oh, wow. Well, come a long way from that last 10 bucks. That's for sure. Yeah. So. <laughs> Great <laughs> yeah. story. Well, here's a very introspective question for you. If you were a vehicle, what would you be and why? That's an interesting story. I would be my, my current car, the GT3. Okay. But with dirt on the carpet on the inside <laughs> stone chips on the front and used properly there you go totally i like passionate. it 
Yeah. The, the, uh, the idea of a clean car is great. We all love a clean car. But I don't like what, what car collectors do, especially with the GT products with Porsche. They treat them with kid gloves. The second day that I picked up my, my new car, and I don't know how much they are in America, but they're not cheap here. It's not about the money. Let, let's, let's get this straight. It's not about the money. I've always dreamt of having a GT product. I never believed I'd ever be in a position to get one. And every, uh, you know, some nights I walk into the garage at two o'clock in the morning and look at it and think, how the hell is that still there? I can't <laughs> believe it's mine. Sort of thing. So yep. the second day that I got the car, I have two small dogs. and They mean the world to me. And I'm, I love animals and I love dogs in particular. Uh, I do a lot of animal act. Uh, I'm not so active anymore, but I was quite an animal activist young, when I was younger. You know, welfare and all the rest of it. Anyway, so my dogs mean more to me than, than any material thing. So I took my dog out, Freddie. He's nearly 12. He's an old shih tzu. Took him out in the GT3, and he threw up all over it. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> On the second day. So, and uh, I sort of well, sat there and laughed, and I thought, well, that's me. That's cool. It's my yep. car now. <laughs> yeah, now it's broken in. Oh, my gosh. That's a funny story. Well, Shammy, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yes sponsors. Everyone who knows me knows I'm really picky when it comes to my cars and keeping them looking new. I'm a huge fan of Covercraft floor mats. I've protected my vehicle with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft floor mats. They will protect your vehicle's factory carpets from daily abuse, weather, pets, children, weekend adventures, and those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and stylish way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft floor mats come in a wide variety of styles, materials, and configurations, all designed for maximum protection. In addition to Premier Plush and Berber Custom Floor Mats, you'll also find cargo liners, canine cargo area liners, dash covers, and sunscreens. Enhance your vehicle's looks while protecting the factory finishes with easy-to-install and easy-to-clean floor mats. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast's dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. All right, Jamie, we are back, and we're entering the last lap. Let's hope we uh, keep our lunch down before we come through that checkered flag, <laughs> unlike your little dog. Uh, I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? 
with regards to motor cars, it's not about the money. It's not about the value. It's about the, the way that you feel driving it. Yeah. It, very it's, nicely it, you said. Know, people who just put high values, I mean, the, the more expensive the car, the better it is. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? I love walking. And every time I, I need some thinking time and what have you, you often find me on a, on a long walk somewhere. Nice. Uh, so that's a, that's a nice habit. Uh, yeah. 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 I do that too. I walk my uh, next door neighbor's dog, Warden. Yeah. I call them Walks with Warden. He's a really good <laughs> listener. So uh, I like that. Yeah, now, how about, a, how about a resource? Is there a resource you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, I do like reading a lot, but I, I don't have one specific one that I, is a go-to one. I like, I like picking up information from a lot of areas. But my inspiration really is just sitting at the side of a track. Uh, listening to people, watching people, uh, and that, and that's where you get the real sort of feedback without it being influenced by a writer or, or a sponsor or something like that. You, you just go and sit there, buy a $10 ticket, $20 ticket, sit at a racetrack, watch, watch some Miatas racing each other or something like that, and that's where you pick up passion. Yeah, very nice. Now, if I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would that person be? Wow. My absolute hero, and I have to say, I recently met him, and I was almost like a 15-year-old girl at a Bieber concert <laughs> when I met him. And even he said, calm down, sit down, was Mika Hakkinen. If I could spend more time with him, that would be fantastic. That would be I amazing. Think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. very cool. Yeah. Now, is there a book you've read recently or in the past that you'd like to share with our listeners? So I'm currently reading uh, The Perfect Car, written by John Barnard who was the mm -hmm. designer behind McLaren's success in the early 80s yeah. and also Ferrari's success in the late 90s and early 2000s with Schumacher. I nice. met the guy recently, and yeah, it's a very, very interesting book. Very cool. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these awesome resources that Shami has shared with us today on his Cars Yeah show notes page. Just go to Cars Yeah, type Shami, S-H-A-M-I. He's the only Shami who's been on the show, so he's easy to find. Last name is Kalra, K-A-L-R-A, and that page will pop up with all his cool links. All right, Shami, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy. Today, I'm going to buy you any cool collector car in the world. Doesn't matter what it costs, but there's a couple rules. You can only have this one car in your garage as a fun car. You can keep your GT3. That We'll call that a daily driver. Money's no object, but you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other cars with. You have to keep it and you have to drive it, which I think you're a kind of guy who, who is fine with that. So what can I buy you today? I think it's got to be a VW Carmen gear. Really? No yeah. kidding. Oh, yeah, wow. I, do, I absolutely. When I was a teenager, I had a, I had a 65 Beetle, uh -huh. uh, which I used to go to college in, and it had holes in the floor so you could see the road. And the, <laughs> Flintstone the car, we call those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh, so uh, um then i had a 2cv after that but the common gear was that was seeing one of them and even today seeing one of them is almost like wow oh. how i mean that car was more expensive than an aston martin when it was new that's how much detail went into making that car you and i have something that we share here i i love german cars i'm a huge porsche fan i've had lots of 911s but in high school my second car I was able to save up and buy was a 67 Carmen Ghia. Wow. And I had that car <laughs> through high school and college and I restored it, 
loved it, beefed up the engine, did all sorts of cool things to it, drove it all the time. Yeah, those are cool cars. I called yeah. it my poor, my poor man's Porsche. But do you have a specific year era that you'd like? Definitely not the early 70s one with the big uh, realize. I think they right. were late, they, I think 67 was about right, yep. actually, because the early 67 60s, was were, the best year. They yeah. were evolving, <laughs> and they were sort of quite ugly back in the early 60s but i think the late 60s are the ones to have because by the 70s you had to have bigger bumpers and yeah. bigger lights and everything else so i think the one you had sounds like the one i want there you go well i'll get to work yeah i'd love to have one of those but i think i'd i'd have to put a little bigger motor in it They're, they were a little anemic the one i had had it came with a 1600 i beefed that up to a 2110 so uh it had a, a nice little punch to it but uh wow You've taken me on a great ride today. I've really enjoyed your story. I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the listeners here. Could you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance about life or whatever uh, before you drive off into the sunset in that 67 Armageddon? So the, other, the one thing I always say, especially to my children, is never chase the material things. Chase the emotive things. Mm. Emotion Perfect. is more, more important to anything than just material stuff. So, um, yeah. and that's how I live. It's got to be emotive. Very nicely said. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and your company? So we have a website, which is amologatowatches.com. I also have a personal Twitter feed, which I ramble on about maybe a wheel or something that I like, or whether it be <laughs> the smell of a four-cylinder four or something. I don't know what. And uh, so my personal Twitter feed is Lotus Man because I love Lotus. Lotus Man 70. So if you want to follow me on that, then you're more than welcome to. I do there ramble on a bit, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll remind our listeners that I will put links to these on Shami's show notes page. Omologato, O-M-O-L-O-G-A-T-O is the spelling of the company, omologato.com. And of course, his Twitter feed, Lotus Man 70. And of course, Omologato also has wonderful Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those sites you've got to visit. And share a part of this very obvious passion that Chami and the people in this company have for cars and watches and tracks and all the sorts of fun stuff. You can find everything on Chami's show notes page on the Cars Yeah website. Links to everything will be posted there. Chami, thanks again for being so generous today with your time and expertise, uh, for calling in all the way from across the pond, as we say. Until you and I talk again or we meet on a track somewhere, which I hope happens soon, I'll see you down the road. You've been a gentleman. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You take care of your cars, but who takes care of your investments? Tune-ups aren't just for engines. Updating your financial plan is important, too. Your GPS may take you from A to B, but it won't help you on the road to financial freedom. For that, you need a good co-pilot and a very trusted advisor. Chris Kimball, CFP, is just the man for the job. He'll guide you down that road without driving you crazy. For over 25 years, Chris has helped people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. With a master's degree in financial services, he is eminently qualified. And he's a car guy, too. Learn more at chrisvkimball.com or call 866-ON-A-PLAN. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member Finra Sipic. CK Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun 
including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!